Hello, I'm Zach Erickson, and I'm a resident physician in internal medicine at the University of Iowa um, with a strong interest in palliative care um, and plans for palliative care fellowship. And my research uh, interests center around um, goals of care and, and medical decision making. And so that's what I'm here to talk about today. I don't have any uh, relationships to disclose and no conflicts of interest. So my objectives today in speaking to you are, um, my hopes are that after hearing this talk, you'll be able to describe the role of palliative care to patients and also to um, be able to recognize when a palliative care consult might be appropriate, both in uh, inpatient and outpatient settings. Um, also, uh, to discuss um, goals of care as a framework for making medical decisions. Um, and I'm also hoping that uh, to help people become more familiar with advanced care planning, um, just at least very briefly. So what is palliative care? There was a recent public opinion uh, poll conducted by the Center to Advance Palliative Care, or CAPC, um, and this was a survey of the general public, and one of the questions in the survey was, how knowledgeable, if at all, are you about palliative care? And as you can see on the pie chart here, 70% said not at all knowledgeable. And there were another 8% that said they didn't know if they were knowledgeable. So I would tend to lump those in also with the not at all knowledgeable. Um, so that gives us close to 80% of the general public um, not really knowing anything at all about what palliative care is. And so then it becomes very important as healthcare professionals for us to be able to um, explain that to patients. So uh, one way of trying to, to look at what palliative care is, I guess, is to go by slogans or mottos of some of the, um, the main organizations in palliative care. And so I looked up a few of those. So uh, the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine has a couple of different slogans or mottos. Um, physicians caring for patients with serious illness or compassionate care at any stage of an illness. And then CAPC, the organization that I mentioned before, um, has a, a new motto of care across the continuum. And so uh, the reason I included the worm comic in this slide is to bring out that palliative care, I think all of these slogans emphasize that palliative care is not just about care at the end of life. It really is about care across the continuum or at any stage or for anyone with a serious illness. Um, it's often confused with um, hospice medicine, which is a, a part of palliative care. Um, but I just wanted to, to really bring out that palliative care is not just care at the end of life. So 
part of the reason for doing the for cap C uh, performing that poll was to come up with language to exp that people responded positively to to explain what palliative care is um, and this is the definition that they came up with for palliative care and I apologize for just reading word for word off my slides but um, I think this um, is worth uh, listening to word for word so Palliative care is specialized medical care for people with serious illnesses. This type of care is focused on providing patients with relief from the symptoms, pain, and stress of a serious illness, whatever the diagnosis. The goal is to improve quality of life for both the patient and the family. Palliative care is provided by a team of doctors, nurses, and other specialists who work with the patient's other doctors to provide an extra layer of support. Palliative care is appropriate at any age and at any stage in a serious illness and can be provided together with curative treatment. So a couple things that, are, that I'd like to emphasize from this definition are um, that palliative care is really for anyone with a serious illness um, and not only for the patient with the serious illness, but also for uh, their family. Um, and, you know, the wording has recently changed uh, to saying serious illness versus life-threatening illness, uh, advanced illness, um, because the, the research showed that patients and their families responded very well to serious illness, and so I think it's important to use that language. Um, it's also important to understand that palliative care um, is a multidisciplinary field, including social work, music therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, uh, chaplain, um, as well as uh, physicians and nurses. Um, and then another thing that I wanted to, to bring out too is that that's in addition to the patient's um, regular care team or primary care team. So on an inpatient service, the primary care team or an outpatient service, whatever doctor is caring for that, uh, that serious illness. Um, and in fact, the term palliative care comes from the Latin palliar, which means to, to cover or to coat. So just an extra layer of support. And, and again, that um, palliative care as opposed to hospice care, um, can be provided even in the setting uh, when curative treatments are being offered. So why are we even talking about palliative care today? Um, there was a recent study that got a lot of, of press, and it was by um, Temel and others in the New England Journal of Medicine. And um, I think it really illustrates uh, the power of palliative care and, and um, gives us good cause to be talking about it today. So um, this was a study of 151 patients um, with non-small cell lung cancer, metastatic. The reason this cancer was chosen is it has you know, a very well-established prognosis. Uh, most patients 
um, at diagnosis have uh, survival less than a year. Um, and these patients were randomized into, uh, oh, sorry, um, one other reason to choose this cancer is also it tends to have a very high um, uh, burden of symptoms and burden associated with treatment as well. And so um, palliative care is very appropriate um, because of that. So these patients were randomized into two groups, um, one receiving uh, standard therapy alone, so just their regular um, chemotherapy um, uh, or radiation therapy or whatever the, uh, the standard was um, as determined by um, their oncologist as well. Or that standard therapy coupled with early palliative care and that was defined as palliative care consultation within the first three weeks of diagnosis and then at least monthly thereafter, but also as needed. So in this study, um, the patients were assessed according to a couple of standardized scales. Um, one being the FACT-L, which is um, a functional assessment of cancer therapy. Um, just to use as a measurement of quality of life. And, and that's a specific scale used in lung cancers. Uh, the other was the hospital anxiety and depression scale. And the patients were evaluated um, both at baseline at the beginning of the study and then um, 12, le 12 weeks later. Um, and what they were looking at um, as the primary outcome was just quality of life in these patients based on uh, depression and functional status. Um, and they also collected data on end-of-life care, um, so not only survival, but what kinds of therapies they were receiving at or near the end of life as well. So the findings on this slide were not really all that surprising. I think that that's what the researchers expected to find or what I would be expecting to find as well in a study like this that um, overall the palliative care group reported better quality of life. There were fewer patients in the palliative care group that reported depression. And as you can see, um, less than half as much depression uh, in the palliative care group. And um, fewer patients in the palliative care group received aggressive end-of-life care. And how that was defined was whether there um, was admission to hospice within the last three days of life, no hospice at all, or if they were receiving chemotherapy within the last um, two weeks of life. And as you can see, um, again, nearly half as much aggressive end-of-life care in the palliative care group. What really made this uh, study catch people's attention is that the median survival was significantly longer in the palliative care group um, by about two and a half months. So that's really significant to me. You know, if you put this into just very layman's terms, the palliative care group lived longer happier lives, I guess you could say. 
So um, they had less depression, better functional status, and lived longer. So, um, you know, I, I once, uh, to paraphrase a, uh, an oncologist um, that was speaking of this study, he said if palliative care were a drug, it would be fast-tracked by now. Um, you know, these results are really amazing, and that's, that's why we're having this talk today. So moving on into um, when a palliative care consult might be appropriate, um, Campbell um, published a paper in uh, the journal Cr Critical Care, um, and this was uh, specifically looking at um, palliative care consultation in the ICU. And she came up with this um, figure illustrating how um, she sees palliative care consults happening. As you can see, as long as a patient is functioning well on admission to the ICU, the majority of um, efforts are focused on uh, cure and uh, prolonging life. And then at the point where the prognosis is determined to be poor, there tends to be uh, you know, the idea of, okay, let's stop everything else we're doing and palliate. And um, death often ensues shortly thereafter. Okay. So this figure is one that there are a lot of different variations of this figure out there. Um, the top part showing a model similar to the one on the previous slide showing that uh, what often happens is there's active aggressive intent again um, speaking more of goals of, of cure um, or prolongation of life and then gears are suddenly shifted to palliative intent and then there's death and bereavement the um, the figure b shows more of uh, a model of how i think palliative care ought to fit in um, to the um, process of, of a chronic illness or, um, or even an acute uh, and serious illness as, uh, as uh, CAPC defines it. And that is that um, palliative care ought to be involved from the beginning. The palliative needs as far as comfort, symptom management, uh, family counseling, decision making, may be fairly minimal towards the beginning of an illness. Um, but as, um, as the illness progresses, um, the need for, for um, palliative care and palliative therapies um, increases. So um, doctors Weissman and Meyer um, came up with a, a CAPC consensus on um, when palliative care consults ought to be uh, considered and they published this in the um, Journal of Palliative Medicine and again I'm going to apologize for reading a bit on this slide um, but I don't see a, a good way around it as these are just the the list of criteria that they set forth but so they have both primary and secondary 
uh, criteria, both um, for assessment upon admission and then for um, daily patient assessments. So the primary criteria are in a patient with a potentially um, life-limiting or life-threatening condition, and I think now they would say, say a patient with serious illness, um, along with um, one of these primary. So um, the first one is the surprise question. So if the provider feel or would not be surprised if this patient were to die within the next year or in the case of pediatrics um, before reaching adulthood. Um, if the patient has frequent admissions to the hospital for um, the same condition. If admission is prompted by difficult to control symptoms. If um, they have complex care requirements. And again, this is in the setting of a potentially life-limiting or life-threatening condition. So, um, you know, a lot of dependency at home, difficulty in performing ADLs, or um, need for home support for ventilation, um, feedings, nursing uh, care at home. And then decline in function. And again, the part of this is failure to thrive. So, you know, losing weight, not eating, um, or just in general decline in functional status. So the secondary criteria um, as part of consideration of a palliative care consult on admission are just any of these things in this list from admission and this is even outside of the setting of uh, a life-threatening or life-limiting illness. So if they're being admitted from a care facility, patients with cognitive impairment or dementia with acute hip fracture, and that's coming from studies showing um, poor prognosis in these patients. Metastatic or um, incurable cancer, chronic home oxygen use, out of hospital cardiac arrest, past hospice enrollees, people with um, limited social support, and um, no history of completing advanced care planning, which um, we'll talk about uh, later on in the talk. I think it's important to note that these uh, secondary criteria are just times when the team ought to consider a palliative uh, care consult, um, but at, at uh, Many hospitals, you know, things like social support and so forth can be taken care of by the regular um, social worker, but it's just important to consider um, palliative care depending on uh, the um, resources at your facility. And then there's a daily assessment as well. So again, the primary criteria are in the setting of life-limiting or life-threatening illness, and I bolded the ones that are different from the primary criteria upon admission. So um, in this case, an ICU length of stay greater than a week. Um, again, lack of clarity in what the goals are. Um, so on admission, that would come from advanced care planning. But uh, on the daily assessment, that would just come from have the goals been discussed during the hospitalization and are they documented? 
And then anytime um, there is a, a disagreement or differing of opinion regarding uh, important medical decisions, um, you know, and those disagreements can be between uh, families, medical personnel, um, and the patients. And then the secondary criteria um, all, I think, make a lot of, of just common sense. Um, so I'll just go through those very quickly. Um, so patients either awaiting transplant or ineligible for a transplant um, need to address emotional or spiritual um, or uh, relationship stress. Um, any request for a palliative care or, or hospice um, consultation ought to be respected. And then if the patient is considering therapies like feeding tubes, trach tubes, um, dialysis, um, LVAD, and, or any kind of uh, any kind of transplant, including a bone marrow transplant. Um, and then some hospitals have ethics um, consults. In hospitals where there is not an ethics consult team, often it's the palliative care team um, that is called in um, just because they have the skill set of discussing complex situations with uh, families and with other practitioners. And so um, they tend to be uh, very helpful in resolving ethical concerns. So I'd like to shift gears a little bit now that we waded through the uh, the list of reasons to consider consult and um, discuss a case. So this is a, a patient that um, I saw recently who is a man in his 60s um, living in a care facility, has a long history of schizophrenia, um, which has been refractory to a lot of medical treatments. He um, was admitted with uh, initially a leukocytopenia, which progressed to a pancytopenia, and this was in the setting of taking antipsychotic medications, some of which can cause cytopenias. Um, but he also had elevated uh, liver function tests um, and worsening psychosis, and so um, he was admitted. On evaluation, he was found to have enlarged lymph nodes, and lymphoma was suspected. So there were questions raised at that time, uh, and, and I should note that the patient was unable to make his own medical decisions at that time. So the questions arose, should we even biopsy? Um, if the diagnosis of lymphoma is established, would we treat? If we treat, how is he likely to tolerate treatments? You know, why, why are we treating? What are the goals? Um, what was his quality of life before treatment? What would his quality of life likely be after treatment? So these are all um, things that went into consideration of, of both pursuing a, a diagnosis and then 
um, for uh, making treatment decisions. So we'll, we'll um, come back to the case in a moment, but that the case brings us to the role of goals of care and um, decision-making in medicine. So this figure comes from a paper by Drs. Calgen and Broderick, um, published in the Joint Commission Journal. Um, and their paper was discussing the implementation of a uh, using a goals of care framework in um, medical decision-making and uh, specifically in uh, discussions of uh, code status. And uh, this figure illustrates um, a general model for um, clinical decision-making. And often physicians tend to focus on the intervention. So a, a patient will uh, present to the hospital or a clinic and sometimes we may not even have a diagnosis or a prognosis. And we just have an intervention in mind, whether it's further testing to get information, whether it's a therapeutic trial because of something we, a diagnosis we think may be likely. Um, and the intervention itself often receives the most attention. It's, um, you know, and sometimes understandably so. A patient comes because they want something to be done. And so the intervention is what are we going to do about this problem? As I said, there's not always a diagnosis or prognosis established. And if there is, it's not always really discussed um, with the patient or decision maker or family um, when medical decisions are made or um, often under discussed. And then what I think really often um, receives little to no attention is discussion of the goals. Um, both with regards to what the clinician hopes to uh, or expects to see as an outcome of the intervention and then also and especially what the patient um, wants and what they see as important and as their goals and really a uh, discussion of all three of those um, is necessary to, to be able to make appropriate medical decisions. In a study um, by Dr. Calgen um, in 2008, uh, this was actually a, a structured literature review, um, they found six common goals uh, that patients have. Um, and they can be remembered by the mnemonic CLF, CLF, or I say cliff, cliff. And those goals are cure, live longer, improve or maintain function, comfort, life goals, and that's, you know, something specific they want to accomplish, like, uh, for example, in the picture here, a backpacking trip or there might be a wedding to attend, or, you know, finishing a book. Um, that can be any number of things just that someone wants to complete. 
Um, family support, and in, in this case, family support means uh, not that the patient is wanting support from their family, uh, but actually the reverse of that, that they feel that they uh, it, it's important to them to be able to provide support to their family members. Um, I have a grandchild to care for, and so forth. And then in a later um, study uh, by Dr. Haberly and others, a, a seventh goal um, was also established, and that's a goal of just um, establishing a diagnosis. So again, many people might uh, come to the clinic or the hospital not knowing what's wrong, and their goal is simply to find out what's wrong. And then the other goals uh, are set, are dependent upon um, establishing that diagnosis. So um, to go back to the case for a moment, um, and I, I'll go back to to this figure. Um, you know, we disc discussed with. Uh, the decision maker, who was the patient's son, what um, what our options were as far as establishing the diagnosis, what we thought the likely diagnosis was, what um, what we could then do based on that diagnosis, and then what he felt his father would want in this case. Um, he did decide to pursue the diagnosis and got a bi biopsy showing Hodgkin's lymphoma which is a treatable lymphoma and considered curable by um, the oncologist. And then was the question, um, then came the question about the burden of treatment, the likely outcomes, and um, this was also discussed that uh, chemotherapy does come with, with burdens of uh, severe illness, worsening of his cytopenias, all the unpleasant side effects of chemotherapy like uh, nausea, vomiting, um, but that the but that there was a, a possibility and a goal of cure um, that was felt to be attainable, and this spurred discussion of uh, what the patient's quality of life was uh, prior to his hospitalization, and it turned out that. Um, before coming to the hospital, despite his persistent uh, psychotic symptoms, he was able to uh, really enjoy his associations with um, with the other residents in the facility where he was living. He was able to play cards, um, and it was felt like he really had um, an enjoyable life and a, and a high quality of life, and that... Um, it's expected that he could return to that functional status. And so the decision was made to go ahead and treat. So I'd just like to, um, you know, I think that's an example of how all the pieces come together to, uh, to make um, medical decisions in a setting of, of goals. So this is another figure from uh, the paper I mentioned by Calgen and Broderick. Um, and this shows common treatment goals throughout the course of a, a chronic and progressive disease. So many goals can be 
held concurrently by a patient. And often throughout the course of a disease, um, those goals can change. And um, this illustrates a, a common progression showing that uh, often initially there may be a goal of cure um, as well as prolonging life. And when it's found that cure may not be possible, um, prolonging life continues as well as preserving function as well as uh, palliation of symptoms. And as, uh, as each of those things progressively might uh, not um, be very uh, realistic or achievable anymore, um, shifts more and more towards um, just simply palliation of symptoms as a goal. I think uh, one thing to point out about this figure is that initially all of those goals can be held concurrently, um, and I think often are by the patient, but I think by physicians sometimes, uh, I think uh, often it's not thought of as an overlap here, but rather there's a goal of cure and then prolonging life and then preserving function and then palliation, when really um, they can all uh, be coexistent. So another study by Calgen and others um, was a study of general medical inpatients. This was a, a survey study that looked at 135 patients, and they were asked about, first of all, what they understood about CPR, um, what their preferences would be regarding CPR, and then um, they were asked about their goals of care for their admission. It was found that patients had a very limited understanding of CPR, um, and uh, very few of them could name all the components of in-hospital CPR. Um, the majority could name only chest compressions as a part of CPR. Um, and we're not aware of, uh, or, or we're unable to name the other components such as um, electrocardioversion uh, and mechanical or intubation and mechanical ventilation. And patients were also asked about um, their CPR preferences. Um, then they were informed about. Um, the likely outcomes of CPR, which were surprising to many of the patients. Um, and then there was a uh, discussion of goals of care, and then they were asked again about uh, their understanding of CPR. So the majority of the patients in this study endorsed all of the six Cliff-Cliff goals. Um, but the important thing to note was that um, there was a broad distribution of what what they deemed as the most important goal, meaning that can't always assume that uh, cure is the most example, most important. For example, um, so all of those those goals ought to be asked. The majority of patients at the conclusion of the study said that the conversation was helpful, and uh, some patients even changed their preferences regarding CPR um, based on having this interview and this discussion. And this discussion was held um, not with one of their um, practitioners, but rather with the study group. Um, so it was interesting that, that uh, some of the patients even then elected to um, readdress the subject with their primary care team. And in fact, some of them changed their um, code status as a result of the discussion. 
Another study that was set up uh, very similarly, um, but this time in ICU patients. And um, in this study, there were 100 patients in the medical ICU, and either the patients or their surrogate decision makers were, um, were interviewed uh, using a format similar to the previous study. It was found that most respondents very greatly overestimated their um, chance of survival following CPR. Um, with, uh, you know, estimating about over 70% survival when in fact uh, the numbers, um, the real numbers indicate more like 15 or 20% in hospital survivor following a, a code event. Um, they found that a high prediction of survival correlated with full code status and um, that seems to make sense. If you think the intervention is likely to work, you're more likely to want the interventions. Um, in this study, an average of five cliff cliff goals were affirmed. And I think the the one of the big take homes from this study is that 67% or two thirds of the patients or their decision makers differed with the physicians regarding the most important goals of care. So maybe uh, they affirmed five cliff cliff goals. And that's an important step in decision making. But if the most important goal to the patient is palliation, for example, and the doctor feels like cure is the most important goal to be pursued, then there can be a world of difference in um, what therapies are um, performed and pursued. And so it's really important not only to talk about what the goals are, but really then to ask further, what is the most important goal for you as part of decision-making? So to sum up kind of the goals of care framework for medical decision-making, it's important to preface any discussion um, regarding a medical decision by a discussion of the diagnosis um, if it's established and the prognosis as well. Um, and then discussion of the goals, including the most important goal. And then I, I think one thing that's also often left out is a discussion of what are the anticipated benefits. So if we do this such and such intervention, what gain do we expect to see? What's the likely outcome? What might be the burdens associated with that treatment? And um, all of that ought to be considered in making the decision. And then a shared decision ought to be made with the practitioners and the patient or decision makers. Um, Documentation should always be made of those discussions um, and, the, and the outcomes of those discussions. And then this is really a fluid process. As more information is gained or as uh, treatments are, are tolerated or successful or unsuccessful, then um, these different components that go into making the decision um, are changing 
And so this process um, is really a continual process. So what we've talked about so far was really more centered around inpatient care. And now I'd like to shift gears a little bit to, um, to advanced care planning, which I feel is, is really important and, and kind of goes back to um, the study I uh, discussed initially um, about early palliative care in um, these patients with lung cancer. But really for many illnesses, you know, if, if, if we believe that uh, palliative care ought to be initiated early, then it really needs to start in the outpatient setting before they're even hospitalized. So I'd like to bring up another kind of hypothetical case. 70-year-old um, woman with advanced dementia, living in a care facility, really unable to perform any self-care, has a fall and a hip fracture. And then there's discussion between, let's say, two daughters. One says, mom's a fighter. Another says, mom wouldn't want to live like this. Um, there's no durable power of attorney. They both have equal decision-making um, power. So what do you do? Um, another example might be something more sudden. So this one you could argue maybe they saw it coming, the patient was already, uh, already had dementia. Um, say you have a young man in his 30s, um, has a fall from a, a great height while at work, um, traumatic brain injury. Obviously he was young and healthy and no discussion had been made as far as what he would, he would want um, as he has now a traumatic brain injury, unable to be weaned from the vent and so forth. So what do you do? So if you take some of those examples, maybe those patients in the past had made a statement to their loved ones along the lines of, if I'm a vegetable, pull the plug. I think it's very common for people to make statements like that. Um, and this is used as an example in a pamphlet by um, Perlman and others called your, your Life, Your Choices regarding advanced care planning. How should that be interpreted? What is a vegetable? To some people that might mean uh, that you're unable to come off a ventilator, you're not ever gonna regain your neurologic function or ever wake up again. To some people though, it just means that they can't go on doing what they used to do. They can't take care of their own household anymore, uh, manage their own finances, do the chores. Um, you know, maybe it's that they're paraplegic or quadriplegic. Maybe it's that they have some neurolo lasting neurologic deficit and are not able to function on their own anymore. So it really needs to be spelled out um, in order for appropriate decisions to be made. And then there's the question of what is the plug? Um, I think often people mean uh, mechanical ventilation, but it can, you know, life can also be prolonged by dialysis. It can be prolonged by, um, by enteral nutrition feeding tubes. 
um, you know, would they want in IV antibiotics for a severe infection? So um, it's really important that these things are discussed um, and spelled out in detail um, in order for decisions to be made. And this is not only for the good of the patient to ensure that decisions are made according to their uh, wishes, but this also can relieve a great deal of the burden from the family. People don't want to have these discussions because they might feel uncomfortable um, having these discussions, but then um, when these situations arise for a family, it can be very distressing um, if they don't know what their loved one would really want. And there's a great burden or can be a great burden associated with uh, trying to make these decisions. And a lot of that can be relieved if they say, if, if they can say, you know what, we talked about this before and this is what they told me. And there can be a lot of comfort in that. So I just want to bring up kind of what the basic advanced directives are. And then there are a lot of resources out there um, for people to, uh, to look these up um, and, and including the, the pamphlet by Perlman, um, which, which I found online and the, uh, the website is included in my references at the end. So the basic advanced directives are kind of in three categories. There's, there are proxy directives, instructional directives, and personalized statements. So um, proxy directives are um, typically a durable power of attorney for healthcare. Um, it can also be a, uh, you know, a temporary guardian, um, or there are other uh, legal definitions for it, but often um, it ends up being the durable power of attorney. And the important thing again in this case is one can appoint a durable power of attorney, but if no discussion is made regarding what a, um, what a patient would want, then it lies, uh, the burden lies upon the durable power of attorney to guess what the patient would want yeah, you know, being the person hopefully that uh, that ought to know them well. So again, um, just because there is a durable power of attorney doesn't always mean that these discussions of advanced directives has been, has been made. Um, so it's important when um, speaking to patients about uh, appointing a durable power of attorney that, that it's really stressed that they discuss with their uh, power of attorney what their wishes would be. Instructional directives are um, the living will. These can be uh, very specific and helpful. Often they're very vague. Um, another example of instructional directives here in Iowa is the iPost. Um, right now, it's um, currently uh, in test phases and um, is offered just in Lynn County. Um, it's a form um, specifically for patients in care facilities regarding their treatment preferences, not only as far as code status, but um, whether they would want uh, admissions to the hospital at all, whether they would want um, 
uh, enteral nutrition, antibiotics, and so it goes beyond just the code status. Um, but this is a form that uh, stays with the patient at the facility and then can be brought um, to the hospital in the event that a patient is transported to the hospital and it just expresses um, their wishes. And then a personalized statement, which doesn't, which isn't really legally binding, but uh, could be helpful to the family or decision maker. Um, just having a, a written statement of uh, what the patient would want. Um, but in the end, and I think the the main take home for um, this lecture and for palliative care in general is that it's that it's all about communication. There ought to be open discussion of um, diagnosis, prognosis, goals, burdens, and all of that, uh, and and expected outcomes, and all of that um, considered together um, leads to appropriate decisions. Um, so I'd like to thank you all for um, for your attention, and um, you can contact me at the University of Iowa if you have any questions. It's Zachary-Erickson at uiowa.edu. Um, here are my first references. And the rest of them. Um, and again, thank you for your attention to this lecture.